Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It's the audio diary of a humanist celebrant during lockdown. A humanist celebrant who used to be a student priest. I've come a long way. In this episode, I talk about weddings during lockdown and the prospect for them for the foreseeable future. I also discuss my memoir, which I've recently written, and some recent BBC training that I've done. I'm Joe Armstrong. Delighted you could join us. All my life I have kept a journal. In fact, I couldn't have written my memoir if I hadn't kept a journal. I'm 58. And when I was 18, I joined the novitiate of the Marist Fathers in Dublin. 58, so 18, 28, 38, 48, 58. It is 40 years, 40 years, 40 years since I joined the Marist Fathers in Dublin. It was, of course, the biggest decision of my life at that stage in my life. I had no idea, aged 18, where that decision to join the Maris would lead me. Just as today, as I begin this podcast, I have no idea where it will lead me. If I could give you a little bit of context, I am and have been for the last seven or is it eight years a humanist celebrant. I have loved conducting ceremonies. I've been good at it. Get lovely feedback from couples and guests whose weddings I have conducted. Lovely feedback from families whose the baby naming for whose newborn son or daughter I have conducted. And lovely feedback from families where I have conducted a funeral ceremony for their departed loved one. So I've been doing that for a while and well, quite a while, seven to eight years. And of course now COVID has happened and has changed everything. It was a quiet three months this year, the start of the year, January, February, March. I think it only a handful of weddings, if I did even that. And I actually enjoyed that opportunity to finish my book. And then COVID hit. And COVID has changed everything about weddings. People used to like my weddings because they combined solemnity and informality and a bit of crack and fun serious and solemn at the right moments they involved the guests and there was lots of clapping and laughter and I have videos of some of my weddings up on my website joearmstrong.ie but then with Covid well for one weddings stopped weddings suddenly became a really dangerous place to be for everyone and when Covid hit people thought this will blow over in no time and so there was the trauma of having prepared so many weddings and then they're being either postponed or cancelled. And then the thing is, I do not want to conduct any ceremony that could lead directly or indirectly to 
the serious sickness or the death of anybody gathered in that room or the contacts of the people who are gathered in that room. It has been widely publicized that a groom died two days after a wedding in India and up to a hundred of the guests tested positive for COVID. Weddings are dangerous places. It's no accident that they were among the last things on the detailed plan for reopening the economy. And they're going to continue to be dangerous places to be. But because everybody has this notion that the war will be over by Christmas, it's really hard to combat that expectation, that hope, which couples have. So, to be frank, when it comes to planning weddings, what kind of a wedding can you plan for? Personally, and I understand people are optimistic and they want everything to get back to normal. For example, they're hoping that their wedding, which is like all of a year away, or a few months away, or even two years away, they're hoping that it'll be, you know, 120 guests or everybody dancing and singing and everybody sitting shoulder to shoulder. Or they're thinking two metres will be reduced to one metre so we pack more guests into the ceremony room. And I'm thinking science. The scientists know that it is safer to be two metres apart rather than one metre apart. So even if the government changes its mind and allows people to be within one metre apart in certain contexts, it doesn't make it any safer. And so when I say that to couples and they're inquiring and I say, well, will you commit to two metres? And they say, oh, well, if the government says it's only one metre. And I'm thinking, even two metres has its risks. The science tells us it's safer to be two metres apart just because the government says one metre is permissible doesn't make it safer why would anybody want to leave their guests less safe and in fact with the recent suspicion and more than suspicion mounting evidence that covid is airborne then even two meters doesn't protect you so my problem is how can i commit to a wedding where the couple won't commit to two metres even if the government says it's okay to do one metres. Okay doesn't make it safer. It just makes it permissible. I think it's too dangerous. And the only requests, inquiries I can consider are where a couple commit to retaining the two metre distance with everybody masked up regardless of any future regulations or recommendations from government. Okay, a little bit about this podcast. I have been doing a a course with Aileen O'Mara, formerly of RTE, on podcasting, and it's a very good course, I recommend it. I've also been writing my memoir, so the memoir is finished. I'm actively looking for a publisher. The idea of a podcast interests me. I love radio. I did a 
a documentary for RTE back in 2012. It was also about my time in the Marists. So I love the idea of a podcast because it's like having your own little radio station, your own radio program. I love the intimacy of radio. So this program that you're listening to is my third attempt, third time lucky, at kind of getting the tone right. I kind of think it's working now. I hope you agree. The first pilot I did during Alien Omara's course, it was an interesting sound, but it wasn't conversational. It was almost contemplative, the first one. And then the second recording I made tried to fix errors in in the first one. But basically, it was too slavishly attached to my memoir. Whereas this one, third time, look, it kind of feels more natural. It's interesting to... In each of the three variations of this podcast, I have sat in a different place. So the first one, all contemplative and slow, I was as good as sitting on the floor. I was sitting on a really low stool and I had coverings and towels and blankets and duvets over everything with a hard surface. And it was all terribly... Yeah, I liked the sound of it. But it was slow and I thought, "Mm, where's that going? And it was like as if I was trying to be the guru to help people to stop believing believing in God. And that's not really what I'm about. My second pilot for this podcast saw me sitting at my desk. But the third one was today. And I have enjoyed it and I think... Dare I say, by Jove, I think it's working. I'm sitting in my office, but in a a very old black swivelly chair. And this is the seat I usually sit in when I am writing my journal. So it's a space where I'm not, I'm out of my head from the sense of I'm not working. So out of my head in that sense of what's going on in my life. So I kind of like, I think this is the place to be. And I bought a a sound wall and it, it sits really neatly around the microphone. So it feels good and I'm enjoying it and it feels natural. I hope you like it too. I've been doing some BBC training over the lockdown, lockdown training. It's been really good, available through the NUJ. The NUJ is a wonderful organisation, folks. So through my membership of it, I've had access to this BBC training on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It goes out at 1.30pm to 230 and it's been really f- wonderful kind of refresher and checking in with and touching base with other colleagues in the communication industry. Yesterday, now when I say yesterday, course, depending on when you're listening to this, but yesterday, for when I'm recording this, was 
the 16th of July 2020. And Andrew Fetis, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, F-E-T-T-I-S, I think. He gave a wonderful presentation entitled Storytelling Tips. And it was very timely for me because he talked about the need to introduce something to give it shape. And he gave the example of Supersize Me, where the the conceit, if you like, was eating fast food for 30 days. And he said that conceit activates everything else. So what's my conceit for this podcast? Well, the title is Losing My Religion. Here I am, age 58. I joined the Maris Fathers aged 18, 40 years ago. And yet the story of my setting out in my young adult life, intending and wanting desperately to be a priest, feeling that that was the most important thing in life, that that would give my life meaning and worth and value and shape and identity and all of those things. The, I think, traumatic experience of gradually coming to the realisation that I didn't believe in it. It was a really long, gradual process for me and, and there were moments of trauma and my entire time in the Maris was characterised by this inner battle between doubt and faith, belief and unbelief. And here I am, age 58, and that struggle, which was the story of my 20s, is to a large extent still the story of my life. Why would I still, age 58, be expending yet more energy on a podcast called Losing My Religion. I haven't called it Humanist Celebrant in Lockdown. (laughs) I guess I know more about religion and I um, did all of the priestly training, left just just before ordination to the priesthood, really, probably about six months or most a year away. So I'd done all the training. And so it, it has just, it has been a major theme in my life. And then over the years, you know, I became increasingly critical. God, I was angry too when I left. I was angry at first. And then you go from anger to indifference. And then, you know, having liberated myself from that whole religious mindset, and I and it is a liberation. I, when I go out my bicycle and I pass the local church, and I see people going into church, and I just feel so free that I don't need to do that anymore. And I know priests, people of all faiths, professional religious people, who actually haven't left yet, but who. Do not believe in God. And one fellow said, as he's presiding at Mass, saying Mass, and he's looking down at the congregation, 
and he's thinking, have they nothing better to do? What are they doing giving up their Sunday morning to be here for? And then, here I am, age 58, a long time since I've been a committed believer. Then I realise that children are being taught fiction as fact. They're being initiated into the very thing that I discovered was nonsense. You know, they're being taught dogmas and so-called truths which have no basis whatsoever in truth. They're just makey-uppy theories and makey-uppy gods and makey-uppy rules. And I... I mean, I had that experience too. Like people during the Enlightenment... Individuals throughout history, the likes of James Joyce, you know, cast off faith. And here was I, decades later, or in the case of the Enlightenment, more than a century later, being initiated into kind of nonsensical beliefs that people 150 years ago had realised were nonsense. But it was still being perpetuated and it caught me up in it and I believed in it put so much of my time and energy into it. I do genuinely believe that religion, religious thinking warps your mind because you're making decisions based on zany propositions which have no basis in fact whatsoever. You're deciding your life. You're factoring in things which simply aren't true. It's like if a scientist went about experimenting weighing the evidence by including all kind of follies they ain't going to come up with anything scientifically worthwhile my memoir which I've recently written the book examines my experience of, of shifting at least from wanting to be a priest to needing to leave I wrote it because I was intrigued in how I came to that decision and the obstacles that were put in my path along the way and the times when I might have left but didn't and then how I eventually came to leave and it was hard to do. I do like this line, so I'm going to read this. Leaving my priestly path was the hardest and best thing I have ever done. It involved rethinking everything I had learnt, everything I believed, everything I had thought was true. And I think in setting out to do this podcast, I had in mind that the listener would be somebody like me who was born into a religion. There are lots of podcasts out there about atheism and and a lot of them are very cerebral and they're debating topics and they're really interesting I like them, I listen to them but my idea was that my idea is that this will be not so much a debate but more like an audio journal but again I thought 
my listener would be, if you like me, age 25. The older man talking to the younger man. A kind of an inner dialogue from the perspective of the older guy. What I, as the older guy, would have liked the younger guy to know. So perhaps my imagined listener. I I know somebody, it was a Terry Wogan, used to imagine he was talking like to whoever, I don't know whether it was his mother or Mrs. Brennan at the ironing board or whatever it was, but he, he literally pictured a real person. And I was chatting to me, Mrs. last night in the Laba and picking our brains on who I could imagine I'm talking to. Who is my listener? And I thought of people whom I know now who are in their mid-twenties and who are religious and who perhaps could do with listening to this show. But they're not going to be listening. Just like when I was 25, I wouldn't have been listening to this show. When I was 25, I was I was going to be a priest. I was studying. I was praying. Going to convert the world. I knew that the church had all the answers. I let the church do my thinking for me. I let the spiritual directors and superiors and popes do my thinking for me. So if, as I set out on this podcast, when I first conceived it, I imagined I wanted to be talking to somebody who was on the way out, if if you like. What might somebody have said to me when I was 25, which could have nudged me and hurried along the process? I was an arch procrastinator. Nine years it took me to leave. Nine years. And when I had those key moments, you know, vocational crises, and there were many of them, but three in particular, on the first two big vocational crises, I stayed because priests encouraged me to stay. And I set aside my thinking in favour of their thinking. I buried my judgment trusting that their judgment was correct. They were wrong, but it it took me nine years to learn that they were wrong. And perhaps I'm the better for it. Perhaps it just did take nine years for me to get to the point of realising that I and I alone choose what to do with my life. I and I alone think and judge Or maybe it just took me nine years to become a responsible adult, leaving my religion. Of course, I've long since left my religion. I no longer believe in any God. I think people who believe in an afterlife are living in a fantasy world. I believe this is my one and only life. Why do I think it's important? Because somehow... My experience of casting off religious belief 
seems to me to be important, not just for me. I'm interested in how that transition happened. What events happened? What did I need to do to walk away? That's it for this first podcast of Losing My Religion. Please do get in touch. You can contact us by email at podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at losingmyreligj1 that's at losingmyreligj and the figure 1. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com forward slash losingmyreligion that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash losing my religion thank you for listening please be sure to follow us so you don't miss any episodes talk to you soon happy days <laughs>